we'll pick up where we left off last week in Judges chapter 11. Uh, is where we finished last week. We'll kind of hit the last couple of verses again tonight, just for good measure. We kind of, uh, I didn't really talk about those last couple of verses in, in too great a detail, simply because I was just trying to conserve us a little time. Uh, but I think there's still a little bit, maybe just for a couple of minutes, things we could say uh, from Judges 11 before we get into uh, Judges 12. And we will conclude uh, learning about Jephthah tonight, uh, Jephthah's story. Uh, wasn't a terribly long story, at least compared to uh, some of the judges we had had before. Uh, but uh, once we finish Jephthah, uh, we'll kind of have a list of those judges that, that we don't really know much about, uh, kind of like Tola and Jer that we read about a few weeks ago, uh, and like uh, Shamgar that we saw earlier on in the book. Uh, the next major judge we're going to get to is Samson, and uh, he's probably the most well-known of the judges, I would say. And we'll be getting to him uh, in just a few weeks. But we'll uh, pick up tonight in Judges 11, verses 39 and 40 is where we will start. And just a few, a few more comments on what we talked about last week before we move into chapter 12 and conclude with Jephthah. So let's pray and then we'll dig in. Father God, we come to you tonight and we thank you for your word. And I pray that you help us to get something from it that we can understand your history of your people and the history of you, dear Lord, and uh, help us just to grow in your word, that we can understand this whole story that we call the Bible and how everything ties together, and most importantly, dear Lord, how everything points us to Jesus. So I pray that you would help me to do a good job to teach your word tonight, and I pray that you just would let the Holy Spirit open our eyes and open our hearts and our ears to hear what you have to say. Uh, and God, I just pray that it will be a good night for us in your word. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now last week we had a doozy of a text, didn't we? We were talking about Jephthah trying to figure out, was he a good guy? Was he a bad guy? Uh, we looked at a few scriptures and we kind of looked at how we make it take him in a bad way or we make him take him in a good way when it comes to Jephthah or some of those scriptures we may have just come to the conclusion, well, uh, the scripture's really indifferent. It doesn't really tell us one way or another. We might could see that he was bad or we might could say that he was good if we tried really hard, uh, but some of them may not have really given us enough information to know if he was good or bad. But we made a case both ways, kind of going to the extreme of those verses to show that he was bad and then kind of going to the exact opposite opposite extreme to show that he was good. And we talked about the vow that he made to the Lord and uh, whether or not he ended up sacrificing his daughter as a burnt offering or whether he uh, gave his daughter that has dedicated her uh, in service to the Lord in some way, shape, or form. Now last week I said a couple times, and I wanted to, to say this too, when we were talking about uh, her being dedicated to the Lord, I said she was uh, maybe dedicated to temple service. Well, uh, you might have been thinking, well, there wasn't a temple then, and you were correct. I realized that afterwards. What I should have said was dedicated to uh, service in the tent of meeting. That's what would have been, or the tabernacle at the time. Eventually there would be a temple, and there would be people dedicated to temple service. Uh, but I wasn't crazy when I said temple last week. I just misspoke. Uh, not, not too big of a deal, but regardless, she would have been dedicated to the Lord in service of the Lord in some way, shape, or form, if that indeed is the conclusion that we come to if you hold that view. Uh, the good evidence to support that there were women in the temple, uh, probably the, the, the best one that, that I've 
think uh, I have discovered and come across is uh, in the story of uh, Samuel, in 1 Samuel, uh, where we see that, one, Samuel was dedicated to the Lord for the Lord's service, and two, we see the priest at the time, his sons were bad guys, they did evil things, and they did, they did bad things to the women who were dedicated and set aside for service of the Lord. And so we see uh, in that story, if you read at the beginning of 1 Samuel, that there were indeed women who were set apart for service for the Lord uh, for the priest. And so uh, that could be what happened to Jephthah's daughter, or she could have been a burnt offering. He could have followed through with that, but we won't rehash all that. Uh, we talked about that in great detail last week. Now, at the end of the story, uh, it says in verse 39, At the end of two months she returned to her father, and he kept the vow he had made about her. And she had never been intimate with a man. Now it became a custom in Israel that four days each year young women of Israel would commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. So what she had asked her father to do and what we talked about is she wanted to go away and mourn her virginity for a couple of months. And her father said, go do that. So this scripture takes up that she had done that. She had returned from mourning her, her virginity, and it says that Jephthah kept the vow, whatever that vow may have been, determined on how you uh, interpret those scriptures we looked at last week. He kept his vow, and it says that she uh, remained a virgin. She was never with a man, but then it goes on to say that it became a custom in Israel that four days each year young women would commemorate the daughter of Jephthah. Now, uh, that's an interesting verse. Uh, now, some of your translations are not going to have the word commemorate. Some of them are going to have the word lament. Uh, maybe a more accurate reading of the text there, a more literal reading would be a recount. They recounted uh, uh, Jephthah's daughter, or they recounted the events of Jephthah's daughter. Now, I don't know if any translation has the word recount in it. Uh, I should have looked that up. Uh, but when you look at the Hebrew word there, that's probably the most literal meaning. That is, they, were, they are remembering something that occurred. Now, when we see the word commemorate uh, or lament, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are commemorating or lamenting someone who has died. You can lament a situation that's going on, and it doesn't necessarily have to be over someone who has died. Uh, if your translation says commemorate, they commemorated her. Well, that also is a word that's a little ambiguous. We talked about that the week before last and last week, that this story just kind of leaves the door open, really. Uh, there are a lot of, a lot of things that the, that the writer here could have said that would have cemented it to let us know that this is exactly what happened. But it, everything it seems like that could cement it for us, it's always left kind of open. As in, it didn't say that he offered her as a bonner offering. It said he kept his vow. It doesn't say anything about her death. It says they commemorated her. Now, uh, when we see commemoration nowadays, we may think of uh, when someone's retiring. Maybe they've been... Uh, working somewhere for 30 years uh, and they are being commemorated for their 30 years of service and they're given a gold watch and everybody has a big party for them. Well, in that case, that's a good example of commemoration. The person is not dead, uh, but the people that are around are commemorating them. Uh, so it's possible they are commemorating Jephthah's daughter in that she was offered as a burnt offering, but it's also possible that they were commemorating her in the tough choice that she had made, that four days a year that they would come together and they would lament or mourn or commemorate her for the choice she had made, and that is the choice that she was going to be dedicated to the service of the Lord. So again, you could take this verse either way, really, depending on what your interpretation is for the rest of the story. You make 
make it say that they were commemorating her death, or you make it say that they were uh, commemorating her life every year they would come uh, and, and, and be with her uh, and, and remembrance uh, and acknowledging the things that she had done. And before we uh, move on, another, another question was posed or a thought was posed last week that, that maybe some of you had too, and I think it's a fair thought, and that is, and I don't know if I mentioned this last week, I may have, but uh, we may be, we, it, it may come to our mind that we think about Abraham and Isaac when we think about this story because Abraham did take Isaac to be offered. Now the Lord spoke up and said, don't offer Isaac. And they looked over and there was an animal there. There was the, the ram that was caught in the thorns and that was what was going to be uh, sacrificed instead of Isaac. But this story, while there are similarities and maybe some parallels and contrast in some ways, it's not quite the same situation. Because in this situation, God did not command Jephthah to make such a vow. He did not command Jephthah to offer his daughter as a sacrifice. Jephthah made that vow on his own, if indeed that's the vow that was made, as we talked about last week. And so while there are some similarities there uh, between this story and Abraham, it's not quite the same because this was not something that God commanded Jephthah uh, to do, if indeed he did offer as a burnt offering. You may also consider, well, didn't God do that with Jesus? Wasn't Jesus offered up for us? Well, that's different too because Jesus wasn't forced to go to the cross. Jesus chose to go to the cross. Jesus gave his own life. Now, in the case of Abraham, uh, Isaac, we don't really know what Isaac's response was there, I don't think. Uh, he, he might have been a willing participant in all of that. Uh, we see Jephthah's daughter daughter was. But in the case of Jesus, Jesus willingly went to the cross because he loved you and I and he loved everybody. He wanted to give his life for, for the forgiveness of sin so that we could all be forgiven. So that's a little different from this story too. Jesus, was, Jesus wasn't forced to give his life on the cross. Jesus willingly, knowingly came from heaven to this nasty old sinful earth knowing what was awaiting him and he still went through with it because he loved us. So while all of those stories may have a child that's uh, being put up for sacrifice and the first two are not and the, and the last one does give their life, they're all a little different. And in the story of Jesus, it's important for us to know that that was something that Jesus willingly did. He willingly laid down his life for us. Now, continuing on with Jephthah in Judges chapter 12, just seven little verses here, we have a few things mentioned in this part of the story that uh, we just kind of have to fill in the, the gaps because we don't have background on them. We just have what's told to us here. In verse 1, the men of Ephraim were called together and crossed the Jordan to Zephon. They said to Jephthah, Why have you crossed over to fight against the Ammonites, but didn't call us to go with you? We will burn down, excuse me, we will burn your house down with you in it. Whoa, that's pretty intense. So here are these Ephraimites, and they are mad because Jephthah didn't call them to come be part of the battle against the Ammonites. Now you may recall that when we were studying about Gideon, after Gideon had defeated the enemies then, it was the Ephraimites that came to, to Gideon and said, look, why didn't you let us be part of the fight? Why didn't you call us? So I don't know if these, if these Ephraimites just left, felt left out. I don't know if they were just fighters, if they were always just looking for a fight. I don't know, but in just a couple of few chapters uh, time here, we see twice after a big battle has come and God has delivered his people through a judge, 
that the Ephraimites are mad because they didn't get to be part of the part of the part of the action. They wanted to be part of the action. So here they come, and they're coming against uh, uh, Jephthah here, saying, "Look, why didn't you let us come be part of the action? Why didn't you call on us?" And so it says they were called together across the Jordan to Zephon. Now on the map here. Zephon would be located in just about this area right here. Now, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, when the Ammonites first started their attack, now uh, they came from this area here, These, this is where Ammon is, and they, they began to attack Israel in this area over here. So they attacked a lot of Israel in this area. And this is where Ephraim was. Ephraim is specifically mentioned uh, at the beginning of this story about, uh, about the Israelites being under attack and about Jephthah. Ephraim is specifically mentioned as being one of, the, one of the tribes that were under attack. Now, that was 18 years, if you remember, from a couple of weeks ago that they were under attack. It's not like Ephraim didn't have plenty of time to fight against them if they wanted to fight against the Ammonites. They had a lot of time. They had 18 years if they wanted to fight against them. Uh, but what we see in this passage is that the Ephraimites, which would have come from this area right here, they came back across the Jordan River uh, to Zephon that we saw in the text there. And it would have been right in this area, just real close to the Jordan River. Now this is the area of Gad right here in the middle, and this is where Gilead was. So that's where, uh, that's where Jephthah was from. That's where the, the battle took place at uh, that we've been studying about the last few weeks. Because once the Ammonites left from the middle of the land of Israel and they went back across uh, to the land of Gad, well, that's when the Gileadites got together and said, who's going to defend us? Who's going to take care of us? Who's going to deliver us? So the Ephraimites had come from their side of the land, and they had come over to Gilead, where Jephthah was, to address him and say, look, why didn't you let us be part of this action that took place? And they were so mad that they said, we're going to burn your house down, and you're going to be in it. Well, dang, that's pretty intense right there. So these guys weren't playing around. So let's see what Jephthah said. Verse 2. Then Jephthah said to them, My people and I had a serious conflict with the Ammonites, so I called for you, but you didn't deliver me from their power. When I saw that you weren't going to deliver me, I took my life in my own hands and crossed over to the Ammonites, and the Lord handed them over to me. Why then have you come today to fight against me? Now, we don't see this occurring earlier in the story that we've read, uh, but it must have occurred. Jephthah said, I called on you and you didn't come help. So obviously they were called on, they were informed about what was taking place, and they had chose not to help the Gileadites through all that was going on. And of course, Jephthah here gives the glory to the Lord. He acknowledges that it was the Lord who delivered the Ammonites over to them. So he's questioning them. Look, why are you mad? You're coming at me saying, I didn't call on you. I did call on you, and you didn't come. So you really have no reason to be mad. Let's read on a little further. Verse 4. Then Jephthah gathered all of the men of Gilead. They fought and defeated Ephraim because Ephraim had said, you Gileadites are Ephraim, Ephraimite fugitives in the territories of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, they fought, and obviously Jephthah and his group won, but it's interesting, it says here that the Ephraimites said, you Gileadites are, are Ephraimite fugitives. Now, I don't really know what that means. Maybe that was a, maybe that was a name or, or, or something that they were being called by the Ephraimites that wasn't a good thing, and that, that kind of that got them fired up because of being called Ephraim might fugitives. Uh, maybe that was kind of a derogatory term in that time. We don't really have a lot of background on that statement. Uh, but whatever they said, it was fighting words because 
Jephthah and the Gileadites uh, were able to attack and overtake the Ephraimites in this case. And so uh, this brawl ensued, and we don't have much, uh, much detail about it other than the fact that Gilead gathered all the men and they fought and defeated Ephraim. Now, there's an, another part of this story that we're about to get to that's kind of interesting that took place after this battle. Verse 5. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to the Ephraim. Now, a ford, when it comes to a river, is a spot that, that's, that's shallow enough and good enough that like horses or armies could cross. So it's not going to be a super deep part of a river or a body of water. It's going to be somewhere uh, that's easy for people to cross. And so that's where they gathered at. They gathered at the crossing point. When it says that they, they, uh, the Gileadites captured the fords, it's talking about they captured the areas where people would try to cross through the river. And so if all the people had to cross at a ford and the Gileadites were guarding the fords, then nobody was going to slip through. In particular, in this instance, we're talking about uh, the Gileadites. So, continuing on in the middle of verse 5, Whenever a fugitive from Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the Gileadites asked him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he answered, No, they told him, Please say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce it correctly, they seized him and killed him at the forge of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 from Ephraim died. Now, that's kind of a little interesting thing there. So they needed to be able to determine who were the real Ephraimites and who weren't so that they wouldn't kill or attack or do something to somebody that wasn't an Ephraimite. And so they come up with a very simple solution. Uh, as, as our dialects and the way we speak and pronounce words is different here in the United States, so they would have been among the tribes of Israel. Now they had to come up with some way to know that they were different because they were all Israelites even though they were from different tribes it's likely that they all looked similar. They probably had similar features. Uh, it's obvious that they couldn't tell them apart by looks because they, 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 they wouldn't have had them to say this word if they would have been able to tell them just by looking at them if they were from Ephraim or not. So they came up with a simple solution. We'll get them to pronounce a word, a word that they don't pronounce the same way as we pronounce. And if they can't pronounce the word right, then we know that they are really from Ephraim. So they got them to pronounce the word shibboleth. Now, that's not, there's nothing really special about that word. That's just a word. It's just a random word that they picked that would have uh, been difficult for the Ephraimites to pronounce. It could mean uh, an ear of corn. It could mean a stream. Uh, it's, it's not clear exactly what the word shibboleth means, uh, but there's no real significance there, I don't think, to the actual word, apart from it was a test. It was a test from, for the Ephraimites. Now, we can understand that because we pronounce words different from people that live up north or people that live uh, out west. Uh, we all have words that we pronounce different. For example, uh, if you watch the Super Bowl, there was a Super Bowl commercial uh, where they were in Boston and it was a car commercial and they all had these very strong accents and they were all talking about parking the car. We're going to park the car. And that's the way they say car and park in Boston, in that area. Now, we say car and park, and they think we say it funny, and we think they say it funny. It's the same word, uh, but if you ask them to say it, they're going to say it different than we do. Uh, another good example I thought about was our former president, George W. Bush. Many times you may have heard him say the word nuclear. Well, there is no word nuclear. There's a word nuclear, and I put that on the board because I was, I was curious. I, I was hoping somebody was going to come in and, and y'all were going to say it as you, as you, as you come in because I was interested who in here says nuclear and who says nuclear. 
Now, even though there's no word nuclear, we know what we're talking about. And it actually has become acceptable because so many people say the word nuclear. And so even though uh, it's spelled one way, we say it a different way. And so if I were to tell you guys today, all right, you can be part of my, uh, of my super secret supper club and come back and have a steak afterwards uh, if you can say the word nuclear. But I only let people in that say nuclear and not nuclear. Well, that would kind of separate uh, how people say things. Now, again, there's no real significance to if you say nuclear or nuclear. It doesn't matter which way you say it. Both are fine. But the point being is that some people speak differently. And that was what the plan was here for the Gileadites. They were going to weed out the Ephraimites because they were going to not be able to pronounce the word the right way. Instead of saying Shibboleth, they couldn't pronounce that sh. So they were just going to say Sibboleth. And that's how they were able to weed them out. Now it says that at that time 42,000 from Ephraim died. I don't know if it was 42,000 of the ones that couldn't say the word right or if it was 42,000 total in the whole uh, battle that they had been fighting. If it was 42,000 that were trying to cross that couldn't say Shibboleth, then man, that's a lot of people uh, that, they, that they were able to, to, to uh, overtake because of that test. But that number could include the whole amount of people uh, in the battle that we read about before. And then it says in verse 7 that Jephthah judged Israel six years, and when he died, he was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. And that brings us to the end of the story of Jephthah. One thing I was thinking about uh, between last night and today is I was thinking about uh, some of these stories that we've read in Judges, and, and really throughout all of Scripture. And I was thinking about Scripture as a whole, and that everything we see in Scripture, it all points to Jesus. From, from the beginning to the end, all throughout Scripture, everything we, we study about, it all is going to point us to Jesus. And there are lots of, uh, lots of connections we can make to, 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 that, are, that are very clear that are going to point us to Jesus. Some of them we may not notice right offhand uh, when we first read, but everything in Scripture is always going to point us to Jesus. However, sometimes when we read through Scripture, in particular stories of history, not every single verse of Scripture necessarily uh, may have uh, an easy gospel connection to it. Uh, we could just pluck one verse out here and there, uh, and we may not be able to really preach the gospel on that one particular verse, but it by itself is a piece of the puzzle. Now, there are those good stories and those good parables that are real easy, preachable stories that really point us to Jesus, and it's easy for us to make those connections. For example, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, you can preach the gospel from that one verse. But we take, for instance, some of these verses we may see in Judges, and we may not pluck one out and pull the gospel out of that one verse, but all of these verses that we see throughout Scripture, Scripture as a whole is pointing us to Jesus, and all of these verses are pieces, like a puzzle. When you're putting a puzzle together, let's imagine, for instance, we were putting a puzzle together of a dog sitting uh, in a green field with a blue sky in the background. Now, it would be easy for us if we were looking at the dog that had different spots and different shapes and had legs and ears and eyes. It would be easy for us in an instance to pick out which pieces belong to the dog. But for the grass and the sky that was all the same shade of blue and all the same shade of green, we still need those pieces to make the full picture, but those pieces may not be as easy for us to spot. 
But we can't just look over them. We have to get all those pieces and we have to put them in together. And while the pieces of the dog that we see when we're, when we're scrolling through, we see them and some of them jump right out to us and we say, oh, I know what that is. That's the, that's the main part of the picture. That's the focal point. Well, sometimes that's what Scripture is like to us. There are some Scriptures that we see as we're combing through and we're reading and we see them and we instantly say, that Scripture is pointing to Jesus. That's the focal point of the story. That's the main part of the story that we're focused on. And it's easy to see Jesus in that verse. And some of the rest of them we're looking through and it's like it would be like the grass or the sky in the picture. And we say, well, boy, that, that doesn't really have a lot of detail on it. But if you put all your picture together and you leave a few pieces out of the sky and the grass, well, the puzzle's not going to be complete. It's not going to be the same beautiful picture. And when we read through God's Word, we have to read it all. We even have to comb through some of these pieces that we say, well, boy, that don't make any sense, or well, I don't know how that points to Jesus. And maybe the verse or the, or the one little section you're reading maybe doesn't make a real clear connection to Jesus, but as we read through the whole chapter or through the whole book, boy, the picture begins to come together. And that's what the book of Judges is doing for us. The book of Judges, all these judges and all these little details and all these things about Shibboleth and Sibboleth uh, may seem like minor things, and maybe they are in the grand scheme of things, but when we look at the book of Judges as a whole and we take the whole story and we get all of these pieces and we put them around the rest of the pieces, they all make this beautiful picture that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Judges is doing for us. It's pointing us, one, to our, 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 our need for a Savior, that we are sinners in need of a Savior because we continue to fail repeatedly, just as the Israelites did. They failed and they failed and they failed. And human judges kept coming, but they were not good always. Some of them were good, but some of the leaders that came uh, were not terribly good. And so even though they could deliver the people for a little while, they could never deliver the people forever. And God was going to send us and did send us in Jesus Christ a good and faithful judge who will judge all people one day. Now what we see through these stories that we look at uh, in Judges here is that one, the, God, the, the judge that God uses is able to deliver his people, but only for a little while. When the judge comes, God's people are saved, and those who are against God's people are destroyed. We've seen that theme over and over again. And so it will be with Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes, he is going to be a good and faithful judge. And those of us who are his will be delivered in the same way the Israelites were. And those who are not his will face his judgment. Now, when we stand before the judge, well, what are we going to experience? Are we going to experience his grace or are we going to experience his wrath? Well, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're going to experience his grace. But if we don't, we're going to experience His wrath. If we're with Jesus, we'll be like the Israelites in this book. Uh, that is, we will be delivered. The difference being is that one, once we are delivered through Jesus Christ, we won't have enemies coming after us again. We won't have sin tempting us again. We won't have a judge who will fail. We will not fail, nor Jesus will fail. And that's what makes the story beautiful. Judges is a reminder to us that, look, as humans, we continue to sin, and even human leaders, as good as they may be, are never good enough. Because it says in the book of uh, Judges, as we continue on, uh, that the people continued doing what was right in their own eyes. And we sometimes may do what's right in our own eyes, but we should not live by what's right in our own eyes. We should live by what's right 
in the eyes of the Lord. And so we see this process, and we take the book of Judges and even the stuff that may not make sense, but it's building up part of the story. It's building up, okay, things are bad. The judges aren't going to be sufficient. We're going to have to go to the next level. So what's the next level? Well, it says they didn't have a king. That's why they did everything that was evil and uh, what they wanted to do. So guess what happens next? God appoints kings for them. Well, then guess what happens? The kings aren't very good either. A lot of them are bad. And so it's setting us up, showing us that God tries every way that he can through human means to deliver his people, but human means are never good enough. There has to be something better. There has to be the very Son of God. And so all of these things that we see in the Old Testament, they're all pointing us to Jesus Christ. They're all pointing us to our sinfulness and His grace. And all of these little things we see, well, we're piecing them together. And I know when we go through these books, it takes us a year and a half, two years sometimes to go through them. And we we, we spend time on a lot of little pieces, but hopefully... By reading and looking and twisting all these pieces every which way and saying, ah, this is how this one fits, we get a better understanding of the story and a better understanding of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your words, and we thank you for all the pieces of the story and help us to understand them as best we can. And uh, even the pieces that we may want to throw to the side and say, well, I don't know where that goes. Dear Lord, help us to be, to be ready to find a spot for it. Dear Lord, and the more we read, the more we study, the more we know your word, the better it'll be and the easier it'll be for us to kind of get the big picture of Jesus. And so I pray that when we read your word, that we realize that's what it's pointing us to. I pray that we learn uh, from, from what we read tonight about all this shibboleth and sibboleth and all this stuff that may not make a whole lot of sense to us, dear Lord, but, but help us to understand it's part of a bigger picture. And I pray that we would always do that every time we read your word. And I pray that you would uh, just guide us as we do. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.